0: Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. If you would remain standing, our sermon text this morning is Nehemiah 13, last chapter of Nehemiah. No list of names this time. Nehemiah chapter 13, hear now God's word. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest He was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and he was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you, And do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Sometimes simple fixes don't address the problem. I shared a couple of weeks ago about our leaky bathtub faucet and uh, the streaming water coming out and, and the, the fact that things we had tried, you know, cranking it down, changing the stem, right? All of the less, like, it's not cheap when you call a plumber, right? But the relatively less expensive things didn't change the problem. Sometimes, to fix a leaky faucet, you have to open up the wall. And sometimes, to address our sin problem, what we need are not little fixes, behavior modification. Sometimes what we need is open-heart surgery. We finally come to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, after one more list of names, and there were a couple of verses that had more than one person in them. But but why does Ezra and Nehemiah end on such a downer? We've had high points with celebrations and feasts and dedications of the wall, and those would have been a a much happier ending. And instead we come to this chapter that the catalogs a series of failures. Failures in relation to things they had promised to do. And Nehemiah pulling out his and others' hair and crying out for the Lord to remember him. If there's one thing we have seen throughout these books and culminating in this chapter... It's that for all the high points, for all of the things that they have done well, this community that's back in the land and is rebuilding has has failed to learn the significance. Failed to reckon with the importance of keeping themselves unstained from the world as they find themselves more influenced by the people around them than they find themselves to be influencers. So as we move through the chapter, the first thing we see in these first three verses, and especially verse 3, is the subtle seduction of the world. It's highly unlikely that Nehemiah and his contemporaries set out to renege on their commitments of a few chapters earlier, and, and to set themselves on paths that will directly contradict what they have covenanted to do. It's unlikely that they woke up in the morning and said, Yesterday I said I will do this, but today I will do not that. I will do this instead where do we find them in this last chapter of Nehemiah? But walking away from the Lord their God. And honestly, at a pretty good clip. How could this be? The opening of the chapter gives us a clue. As we look closely at verse 3, it says, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. They've been subtly seduced by the world around them, and they need to be shocked out of it. There are three elements in verse 3 that demand our attention. First is that phrase, as soon as they heard the law. Think about the implication of that phrase, as soon as they heard the law. Does it not suggest that the law was being neglected As soon as they hear God's word they respond But in order for things to get where they are how long had it been since they gave attention to God's word It reminds us of the of the rediscovery of the book of the law in the time of Josiah as their Renovating the temple, they come across this scroll and they read it and they say, Oh no. And they bring it to Josiah and read it to Josiah, and he joins them in saying, Oh no. The law had been neglected for such a length of time that it didn't just gather dust like a Bible that sits on the shelf untouched, it had been forgotten. They have forgotten its contents. And when it was discovered anew, they were cut to the heart. As soon as it's read, they weep. Because they know the law is broken. But the genesis of their situation is in a prior neglect of God's law. As we see here. When we speak of the subtle seduction of the world... The neglect of God's word is at the root of the crisis. When we don't treasure God's word, it's much easier to find other words more compelling. To see them as promising more than they actually have on offer. Remember that the first sin arose from an enticement to question God's word to prefer to take someone else's word for it. And sometimes our neglect of God's word is, is so great that Satan doesn't even need to call God's word into question for us. It's so far from our mind, from our attention, from our familiarity. All he needs is to set before us some entertaining trifle something with a wisp of promise or desirability about it, and he he finds us unequipped to see through its false promises. Perhaps you've heard of C.S. Lewis's illustration of a child who's playing with mud pies and is promised a holiday at the sea, but they can't even fathom what that means. And so they keep on making mud pies in the slum. Sometimes we find ourselves captivated by what the world offers because we've lost sight of what the Lord holds out to us. We're like one who who stops at McDonald's on the way to Thanksgiving dinner, and we find ourselves without room for pie at the end, rooted in and neglect of God's word. When they heard, the law read. In the next phrase, it says they they separated all Israel. But what does that communicate to us? Because Israel has, from earliest times, been called to separate from the world, to live distinctly as the Lord's own possession. Consider this representative command from Leviticus: it says, "You shall be holy to me." For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Leviticus 20 and verse 26. And yet here they find that they have to separate because they have failed to do so. They have lost their grip on their distinct identity, their separate calling, their holy life. They've not held on to what distinguishes them from the mass of humanity, from their fallen neighbors. They don't know what it means to be God's people anymore. And It's a question we might well ask ourselves. As we search our own hearts, as we examine our own lives, is there a marked distinction Between us and our pagan neighbors. Other than an hour on Sunday morning. Maybe two. If you're here for Sunday school. Could someone from the outside look and see. That you are one distinct. You are one who belongs to the Lord. That there is a difference between you. And those who don't follow Jesus. The last phrase we notice in this verse is from those of foreign descent. And here's a difficult point to get our head around. As the returned community is confronted by God's law and puts their finger on what's wrong, their response is to separate from Israel all those of foreign descent. But what are the promises to the nations? That in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. What of Ruth or Rahab or the Gibeonites who find themselves enfolded into Israel? What of the mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Israelites and joined them? And what of those earlier in Ezra-Nehemiah who separated themselves from the people of the land and their idolatry, so that they could join in eating the Passover? In Ezra 6. We know from these and from other texts that those who are ethnically, who are not ethnically related to Israel and Judah may nevertheless be incorporated into God's people. But we also know from the few examples of those who did so in the Old Testament that they were the exception and not the rule. Far more common was the pattern that Israel would adopt the lifestyle, the habits, the worship practices of her neighbors. Offering sons and daughters in exchange in marriage, losing their grip on true worship of the one God of the universe. The separation enacted here suggests that their pagan neighbors had made serious and consequential inroads into the society of the rebuilt community. And we're leading them away from the Lord. Something borne out over the rest of the chapter. These inroads have had devastating consequences for God's people, reaping a harvest of sin left and right that has carried them further and further away from the Lord. And this leads to our next point that's demonstrated in the meat of the chapter. And that is the fundamental reality of compromise. We see this from verse 4 all the way through verse 29. What may have seemed at the time rather subtle and insignificant concessions along the way with the world, with their neighbors, have manifested in three major areas of both individual and community sin that Nehemiah must needs address. The first in verses 4 through 14 has several layers, but Nehemiah lays it bare when he says, why is it that the house of God is forsaken? The house of God lies in, Forsaken, He gets to that point in verse 11, but we see it develop over several things that must be addressed. First, his enemy and the enemy of the people of God has been provided a room within the temple itself. As Tobiah the Ammonite dwells within the temple with a room provided. A large chamber, verse 5, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain and wine and oil. Now, Tobiah is a man with connections. He's got his fingers into some of the people involved in the priesthood and the worship of the temple. But do you note the connection with the room he occupies? And what continues to unfold as Nehemiah chases down the problem? Because the tithe has not been brought in. Why is there a room available for Tobiah? Because the people have neglected the offering that supports the Levites and the priests. So that on the one hand, there's a room available to be provided for an enemy of God's people within the temple itself. But on the other hand, with the consequence that the Levites have fled to their own land in order for them to feed their families, they have to abandon the work that God has set them apart for. To try and grow crops back in the countryside so that the house of God is forsaken and worship is affected as the worship leaders and teachers of Israel are absent from the temple this is one the first of the concrete results of Israel warming up to this subtle seduction of the world and, and compromising here and there. And then it gets rolling and it's like a snowball and it, and it adds up. The next is in the desecration of the Sabbath. And again here, there are several layers. Some of the people openly, Openly violate the Sabbath. A day given, set apart for rest in worship. And they're about their normal daily work. They're treading wine presses. They're loading up burdens. They have made it such that there is no difference between the Sabbath and any other day. The God has God required them a day set apart. And they have said, no, thank you. Of course, it may have been easier for them to do this with the house of God forsaken by the priests and Levites. See how these things are intertwined with one another. How these how sin compounds sin compounds sin. Some of them are a bit more Subtle. They won't carry the burdens themselves. They'll let the foreigners labor on Sunday. But they're happy to support them economically. To spend their money for what the Tyrians are selling on the Sabbath instead of doing the work of preparation themselves. Where are the Levites and the priests? Who could teach them here? Where is their own preparation for the Sabbath beforehand? That they might give the day holy to the Lord. Where is their trust in the Lord? That they are able to give a day to him in rest and worship. Because he has shown himself to be their faithful provider. The house of God is forsaken. The Sabbath is desecrated. And then there's a failure to teach the things of the Lord to the next generation. A failure that involves several elements as they have have married foreign women. Not women who came from other nations and banked everything on the Lord and were enfolded into the people of God, like Rahab and Ruth and others. But women who have retained their foreign identity, their allegiance to other gods, their culture as pagans and have passed that on to their children. So that the people have done what Deuteronomy is at great pains to warn against as they have come into the land and they have forgotten what the Lord has done for them. And they have failed to teach and to speak and to pass on and to train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that some of them don't even know the language of worship of God's people. Can you imagine raising a generation of children that doesn't know the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? Can you imagine raising up a generation that that doesn't know John 3.16? The linguistic connection is difficult here, But what it belies is a, is a failure of catechesis, a failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. So that as Nehemiah expressly <coughs> points to what we saw happen in the household of Solomon, which led over generations to the exile we've just gotten back from is happening in our own homes. As our families are now mixed with the world, with those who do not love our Lord, and our children grow up confused at best, more likely raging pagans. This is the fundamental reality of compromise with the world. It starts small. It appears subtle. It seems insignificant. But its consequences loom large. So is that it? Is that where we end Nehemiah? Back in the land, but Oh, well, didn't work out. No. See how in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his weeping and confronting the people over their sin, yet Nehemiah holds on to hope. And he points us to a final victory and a blessed reward. We see this in his calls, his addresses to the Lord to be remembered in verse 14 and 22 and the end of the chapter, verses 29 through 31. Three times, Nehemiah seeks the Lord in the midst of his activity. He asks to be remembered. And once in the midst of that, he asks the Lord to remember the actions of others. Then each time, a distinct Reason is given. Verse 14, we see that he asks to be remembered for the sake of future worship, that the worship of the Lord might continue. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this this restoring of what was lost, this reinstituting of the tithe, this supervision over its collection and distribution. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Lord, remember what I've done. May it prosper. May worship continue. May the Lord's house not be forsaken again. We see him cry out to be remembered for mercy. In verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Spare me not because I have earned it or deserve it, but spare me, Lord, out of your mercy and compassion. And then from verses 29 to 31, remember, O Lord, for the sake of punishment and reward. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Their actions threaten the future of worship and the fidelity of God's people. Lord, remember that against them. May there be justice. May there be a reckoning. May God's people see victory over their enemies. And then as he cleanses and establishes and provides for the sake of continuing worship, he says, remember me, O my God, for good. Because Nehemiah anticipates a reward. As we see promised in the New Testament as well. He longs to hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Nehemiah pleads to be remembered in his actions for the house of God. According to the greatness of God's steadfast love and for his good. Nehemiah knows that deliverance from this cycle of sin and repentance and new sin requires God's intervention. It requires heart surgery. The experience of exile may have punished the sin of God's people, it may have allowed the land to rest, but it has not fundamentally altered. The character of the people who have returned. More is needed for that. So, Nehemiah, here at the end of this book, looks forward in hope to one who will be consumed by zeal for God's house and will cleanse the temple. One who will come and teach us the true meaning of the Sabbath as made for man. And one who will cleanse his bride by the washing of water with the word. One who will be made sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This lackluster and disappointing end of Ezra Nehemiah serves to point us to the Lord Jesus and to God's provision for us in him. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray. When we face discouragement, when we are weighed down by sin, when we are caught in conviction, would you grant us to see your mercy in Christ? May we learn with Nehemiah and those to whom he ministered to look beyond ourselves and our own efforts in our own attempts to promise to do better next time. To see our need for hearts of stone to be made hearts of flesh. And to behold your provision for that need in the work of Christ and in the pouring out of your spirit. Lord, would you grant us the work of your spirit that we might be formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus as your spirit puts to death in us the deeds of the body. Lord, who will deliver us from this body of death? Yet you have done this for us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.